I feel like I have to say something because I'm getting ready to ask you guys to stand up again. <laughs> but uh, I don't have anything to say. Uh, Legacy's going to be great. Um, praise God that we get to sing his praises. And please stand. And we're going <laughs> to open up the book of Hebrews, <laughs> chapter 4. Be the same text that we've been in for past couple of weeks, Hebrews 4, 14 verses, verse 14 through 5, 10. I'll begin at 4, 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We ask that you would teach us, open up our eyes to understand what you would have us to see. Open up our ears to listen to what the Spirit of God would have to tell us. Pray, God, that you'd use me as a willing servant, God, to preach your word in spirit and in truth. Pray that you'd hide me behind the cross, Lord God, that you'd help me to see the glory of Jesus proclaim it to those who would listen this morning. Thank you, God, just for your faithfulness. Thank you for your mercy. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. may be seated. One hope I have is as we continue to progress through the book of Hebrews, I hope that we have been reading these texts through the lens of grace. And everything that we've been studying and trying to to grasp, throughout everything that this writer is trying to articulate to this Jewish church who is experiencing persecution and hardship, I really do hope that we're reading all of this content through the lens of grace. There's much to reflect upon the grace of God and all that we've read up to this point, and there's many more 
uh, verses and concepts, different topics that will be unpacked throughout the rest of Hebrews. Grace, hopefully, is that ringing theme that you are continuing to come back to. I've explored these texts just in study and, and obviously had the privilege to preach them. And oftentimes, honestly, I'm just left with this sense of praise, this praising God for the priesthood. There's a lot of the technical data that you work through, maybe just the translation and, and some of the context that you're trying to unpack in light of what's been said earlier in Scripture. But when you just sit back and you think about what's being articulated here, and you step away from all of the data and the systems and things like that, you're beholding Jesus in such a way that the, the only proper response is to praise God for all that he's done. This priesthood that he gives us is, is not just left to fall and to fail, but he gives us something greater that we can often reflect on with dead ears and dead eyes and not respond with praise, but Praise God for his spirit that illuminates the truth of all that we're observing. In the past couple of weeks, we've unpacked the nature of the priesthood to discover our need and then see how Jesus perfectly meets our need and then becomes so much more. We've discovered how Aaron's model of the priesthood, the initial high priest, this priesthood failed. And even in all of the instruction that he was given, it gives us this portrayal of how man could not meet ultimately what we all needed. We go to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek models for us this concept, this idea of something greater, a greater order, the order of Melchizedek, this order of the king-priest. We compare the two and we understand Aaron's model and we see Melchizedek's model and the Levitical lineage that comes from Aaron, it can inspire fear. We can be fearful because of what we learn about Aaron and the priests that followed him. As we watch the high priest enter into this tent of meeting with gaudy garments and specific instructions, they, they walk in ever so carefully with all of their garments knit in a specific way and to display this kind of holiness that God commands in Scripture, only for them to walk out of the tent of meeting and their sin to remain. This higher order, this order of Melchizedek, causes us to gaze to look at something that is greater we discover that we have this great high priest in Jesus who passes through the very same veil that the Levitical lineage passed through. But he does more. He passes through this veil to commune with God, this holy of holies place. But he presents himself in vestments that are more beautiful than these, these beautiful stones, these gaudy stones, these garments that look so, so impressive. What Jesus has on is more beautiful than precious stones and fine linen and exquisite craftsmanship. But he's clothed in righteousness. He's clothed in truth. 
He's clothed in perfect obedience to the Father. He passes through this veil, presents himself. He offers himself the perfect sacrifice with every conceivable and inconceivable condition being met in his person. And then he cries out and he dies. Dying, he cries out, and as Matthew's gospel records, the earth trembles, tombs break open, and the people surrounding are panicked, like, what is going on? Jesus cries out and dies, and these things happen. But the first thing recorded, the moment Jesus gives up his spirit, the first thing that's mentioned is that the temple veil is torn in half from top to bottom. The first thing that we see is kind of this anticlimactic piece of information where you see the, the, the world shaking, the ground shaking, and, and you see this, this depiction of tombs breaking open, and, and, you, and you understand that the, those who are watching the scene may be panicked and what's going on, but why are we directed to what happens in the temple with a curtain? Let's first acknowledge that this curtain being torn from top to bottom, this is not just some sheer flimsy piece of fabric. As old Jewish tradition would communicate to us, this is, this is the, the nature of the fabric that is covering the Holy of Holies in the temple. It says that there are four sorts to every thread, one of linen and three of wool, and every thread is six times doubled. Behold, four sorts when they're twisted together, making 24 doubles to a thread. Now, I, I don't knit or do any of that stuff, but I get the point. This is not just some flimsy material that could happen to tear apart because of a natural event. It would have taken someone with the strength of 20 men to tear apart this thick piece of tapestry. So there's something more happening than just something falling apart. A point is being made when this is torn in two. There's something being said by this coming apart in this way. And the point being made here, the purpose in the curtain tearing being recorded first is a simple statement that God is making to the rest of the world. Come. Come. You're no longer closed off Come. Come and communicate with the living God. So we've, we've read this passage 4.14, Hebrews 4.14 through 5.10. And if you recall, we, we started at 5, went down to 10, and now we're coming back to 4.14, laying the groundwork for the priesthood and understanding the significance and who was Jesus and all of this. And now we come back to 14. And we read, since then, we have this great high priest. Now that we understand what the priesthood is, the significance, 
Now we understand why Jesus is the greater high priest. We now come back and say, since then we have this great high priest. Not only passes through the veil, the text here says he passes through the heavens. What's being communicated here in that? I would say we, it, th- this should cause us to reflect back to David's 24th Psalm. The 24th Psalm of David. I invite you to turn there if you'd like. But it carries some language in it that I think will help us see what this actually is telling us. In that Jesus passes through the heavens. If you read the whole psalm, that's great. But what what I'd like to start with is verse 7. I heard this verse quoted often as I was growing up in church. And it seemed to just kind of ring out as this invocation to praising God and, and ultimately just looking upon him and his goodness and his greatness. But there's something significant being communicated here that helps us see why the praises ring forth. Your translations may render 24, 7, and 9 as lifting up, lifting up the ancient doors. Lift up the ancient doors. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift up those ancient doors that the King of glory may come in. The literal translation for the word ancient is eternal. Other Bible translations render this as the everlasting doors. So what's being communicated here by David is this prophetic rendering of Christ's ascension. There is an ascension element here that we're observing. So as we see this text that tells us that Christ passes through the heavens, we reflect back to Psalm 24 and understand that this cannot just be the procession that bears the Ark of the Covenant entering into the temple. But something higher is being illustrated here. One commentator writes this, and I think sums it up very well. The language of the prophet rises far above the solemn scenes witnessed on earth. And at once passes to things shadowed forth by the ark, the tabernacle, and the temple, all of which were figures of Christ and of heaven. The removal of the ark to Mount Zion was a faint shadow of the ascension of Christ, the King of glory, to receive whom the heavens open their everlasting gates. So as we read here, be lifted up, O gates, lifted up, O ancient, eternal doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And what we get here is the procession of the risen Lord taking his rightful place at the right hand of the majesty on high. The angels and celestial beings being so excited and 
marveling at the fact that these doors can be lifted up, that they can be opened to someone who must be so high and holy and glorious that only he could pass through. And as they marvel at his ascension, he comes to sit in the place where no one else could have occupied, and he sits and makes his home at the right hand of the Father, the majesty on high. So you see these exclamations, lift up your heads. These everlasting doors swing open to greet this king, the king of glory, mighty in battle. He conquers death. He's forever victorious. Our great high priest, the man and mediator, admitted to the highest place. You know, And we see this as as believers and those of us who have partaken in his goodness and his mercy. And we see the man and the mediator and the one who is significant to us. Kind of makes you think when when you have this close association with someone who becomes famous or appears on a significant platform. You see Jesus ascending here and being enthroned in such a place, and we look and say, that's, that's Jesus. There's a procession going on that maybe we don't understand and we can't gravitate to, but because of what we know about God and his glory, this is significant for us. So we see Jesus being lifted up in this way, and we say, wow, that's the Jesus who I know. Kind of bring it home and just this natural inclination that we have to associate with a person that we know who becomes famous, gains some sort of celebrity. You know, whatever superficial level that we, we try to associate ourselves with. There's a high school that probably no one would ever have known if it wasn't for one person. There's up in northeastern Ohio called St. Vincent St. Mary's. No one would ever know or even care about if it wasn't for one guy, LeBron James. And because of LeBron James, there are a litany of people, high schoolers, teachers, administrators, who may take that one moment to remember, LeBron James asked me for a pencil in class. LeBron James was caught loitering in the hallway. Let me tell you that story. LeBron James asked me to make him something special at lunch. LeBron James took me, gave me a ride home from school one time. Or LeBron told me these jokes all the times in the locker room. And the association gets closer and closer and closer And who knows if LeBron remembers all of these things, but everybody who was at that high school who touched and felt and had some kind of experience looks at him now and says, I'm associated with this guy because of my experience. So we see Jesus high and lifted up. And it's not just for him to be glorious and receive all the celebration and celebrity But as we'll soon see, it's for him to identify with each and every one of those who he has saved and who he currently mediates for. Our association is never distant 
He remembers every moment, every opportunity that he has had to engage with you in your life. And yet here he is, ascended to the majesty on high. The question that's left here, that's ultimately answered in Hebrews, who is this king of glory? The celestial host asks this question over and over again. And we understand that there's, there's almost this who dares. But it's not just that. It's who dares yet deserves. Who graces these halls with his radiance and splendor. And the answer rings out with messianic emphasis. Answered in Hebrews 4.14. Who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Seeing him in his splendor and knowing that that's where he resides, we must hold fast to our confession. We must hold tightly to our confession to see him as he is causes us to look back to Hebrews 3, verse 1. The apostle and high priest of our confession. This communal acknowledgement of who he truly is. We hold to a confession together as a community, as a body, as this writer is addressing a group of people. Hold on to this confession of our apostle apostle and high priest, the one who was sent and the one who has returned to a place to mediate for you. And as we've seen in the previous chapters, this confession is a mark of endurance It's confession. I understand that, you know, culturally now we're we're tempted to kind of abide by a a notion that the confessions that we have are are a private confession. You know, we, we privately ascribe to these things. We have this private faith in Jesus, our faith that we don't want to express too much to offend anybody, but privately this is what we believe. That's how we engage with society. We have a private confession that Jesus is Lord. There are too many circumstances around us that demand that we move past that to a public confession. There are too many things happening that, that, that should force us to see that we can't afford your private confession. We need a public confession of that which is true and glorious and real. We can't afford you hiding it and making this sensible engagement with society. We're standing against evil and perverse ideologies, unbearable pain and heartache, and even an indifference to that which would be called sin. So here we hear this admonishment to confess Jesus as our apostle and high priest. We just had a time where the baby baby dedications are this public confession of our faith, this something we can all rally around and gather close and see the significance of because of Jesus. I 
Jesus, our apostle and high priest, meets every circumstance with the gospel. This is our confession. This is our hope. And now let's talk about this grace wherein we stand. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 are some of the most comforting verses in Scripture. A lot of times where you're going through different seasons in life and you're trying to understand how to put it all together, you can be led to these verses and be comforted in what God tells us through his servant here. We've reviewed all the failures of the Levitical lineage and uncovered mankind's need for the priesthood. All that's left to behold is the figure of Christ who in all aspects human is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and was tempted as we are. There's hope in that. There is grace in that. And we need to see that as closely as we're able to observe. A few months back, and we were going through chapter 2, and we talked about Christ's sacred solidarity with mankind. And here we see this sentiment of sympathy. So his sympathy that he extends to those who come to him. Now this sympathy is different than what we read eventually here in chapter 5, where the high priest is ultimately able to sympathize with those who he holds these sacrifices for and offers these sacrifices for. He's human as well, so he understands what it means to be human. He goes and he offers sacrifices, but he offers sacrifices for himself. Christ's sympathy extends beyond that. It's, yes, I know what it means to be human, and I know what it means to take on every temptation and, and to see where you're fallen and you're, and you're finite and you can't fully co- get the capacity of what it means to obey God. I can sympathize with that. I felt the tugs of temptation. I know how to identify sin. I felt the opposition of what it meant to be different and to walk against that grain. So my mercy is extended to you purposefully, but it's also positionally. I see you and where you are, but from a place that you could not occupy. Now, before we go any further, it's, it's, it's important to note that we often struggle with the notion that God sees us as we are. He literally sees everyone as they are. This, this veneer sometimes that we put on of the river positive thought or faith, faith-based activities or disguises for who we really are. The things that we hide behind because we want people to have a positive image of us, but you as an individual, Jesus sees. Sometimes we we don't just hide behind those things and participate in those activities. We take it a step further and develop confidence in these moral deeds that we do. And and we have censored language as this representation of godliness in and of itself. So we read these verses. And they're often comfort for those who are broken. 
But I want to caution you that if you, ca- if you couch your brokenness with self-righteousness, you may not connect very well to the fact that Christ offers this sympathy for you. If you couch that brokenness and say it's all the only kind of brokenness that goes up to a certain point, and, and I, I don't see my brokenness in these areas that I've been able to cover up with all of these veneers of moral activity and nice-looking interaction. So the brokenness that I have, I, I present to God, and I'm in control of it. It's not a full canvas of who you are. You may not be able to see the worth in the fact that Jesus is offering sympathy to you. You may not see the worth in the fact that Jesus is, has been tempted in every way as we are. And if you aren't able to be comforted by the reality of the fullness of Christ's sympathy and the extent of what he suffered in temptation, you may struggle with how you comfort others. You may struggle with how you're able to connect with other people in their brokenness. Because after all, you don't need that kind of sympathy. You're not tempted in that way. very difficult for non-Christians to interact with the promises of Christianity because they often view the Christian community through the lens of external requirements. The emphasis is to look like this or to share these interests or to talk this way. Does it present an easily perceived view of a Christ that accepts everybody. When you're able to control that narrative of this is what it looks like to be a Christian, but you're not able to present the full scope or the spectrum of what brokenness looks like, it causes those who don't know Jesus to look at you and say, well, I'm not like you, so how could I fit in there? I think this verse is casting a broad net in how Christ's priesthood provides hope for every type of person. His humanity doesn't just extend to the ideal pictures of who people are. It brings into community the worst examples of morality along with the best practicing examples of morality into one man, into one proclamation of truth and grace and healing to all people. If you're a human being occupying planet Earth, there's no distance between you and what Christ offers. And when you're raised in ideal circumstances, it can be very difficult to grasp this. Still, the sweetest words in this verse are not the sympathize with weaknesses or tempted 
as we are. Those aren't the sweetest words in this verse. The sweetest words in this verse are yet without sin. The sweetest words, no matter what the level of brokenness, no matter what the level of temptation or weakness or failing and falling, Christ knows and sees all of that in every single person. And he's able to identify with that because he was human and he experienced those things. But in the face of every last temptation and weakness known to man, we end up with yet without sin. He's been identified positionally as this great king and priest. Proportionately, with his ability to sympathize, he understands the human experience and has a full identification with being human. So he's able to say, come, I sympathize with you. I was tempted like you, yet I was without sin. So come to me. We continue to verse 16, this invocation to come. I love reading this in the King James Version. That's, that's my favorite way that this has been articulated. This simply says, come boldly to the throne of grace. Now that we know that he's able to sympathize, now that we know that he has been tempted as we are, now that we know that all of humanity has a great high priest who advocates for them, then he says, come. So your approach is not, oh, I don't know. I don't have the right outfit to enter into the Holy of Holies. Oh, I don't know if I know how to do the sacrifice just perfectly. No, the veil has been ripped in half and now come boldly to the throne of grace. You're not wincing and trembling at the prospect of interacting with God in the holiest of holy places. You come confidently. You're not assured in yourself. He's given you all the assurances, so you come assured in him, so your approach is confident. Not as if you have earned it or you have gained the right and you are entitled to, but this glorious king, the king of glories who has entered in through everlasting doors yet knows you, identifies with you. He's the one. Come closer. What will you find when you come? You will find a throne. So that takes away this whole idea that you lose reverence when you come boldly or confidently approach. No, you'll find a throne, but specifically you'll find a glorious throne of grace. You'll find one who knows you. Every aspect of your humanity is laid bare before you, before him. And what does he intend to do with this information and this knowledge of who you are? He intends to show you grace. He intends to pour out his grace. You find mercy. You find help. 
You'll find the fullness of his majesty. From this throne will pour out grace. See, this is a, this is a sacrifice that's so perfect. It not only appeases the wrath of God, but it gives gifts. So it's not just the sliding in, oh, thank you for doing it all, so now I, I can avoid punishment. But it also pours out perfect gifts. You're not just standing in the presence saying, okay, the debt's clear. We can move on to next, the next case. But there's an embrace here. There's love. There's fellowship here. There's let me know you and you know me and let's continue in this together. Whatever you need, I'll supply. Whatever you need, I'll be here. And that brings us to just this tricky little phrase, this phrase, the end of verse 16, the time of need. Now, if you're visiting here at Cornerstone, you may not know this, but the community here at Cornerstone I think if we, if we speak just in terms of, I guess, the external view and what we may be able to perceive, from an economic standpoint, I think we're all doing okay. We're doing pretty well. I wouldn't say this church is a church that's racked with poverty. And I'd say that definitively because I used to go to a church that had a lot of poverty. I used to be a part of a ministry that struggled week to week financially and and understood what it meant to meet these limitations all the time. And I don't think that it's the same with what I interact with here. In my experience and understanding the difference, I used to go to this church that was mixed with middle class folks and then poor folks that used to try to look middle class. And it's important to know the difference. Now, when you observe these dynamics and you meet them with this idea of the time of need, you find that when you aren't used to constantly facing your need, you have to fight to comprehend the perspective of true need. The folks who were actually, in fact, in need all the time, they weren't shy about the fact that they were in need. Their physical circumstances required them to say, I I need help. But when you're doing all right, you're not always inclined to just admit that you need help. You don't know that desperation. You don't know what it looks like to just say, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do this week. I don't know what I'm going to do to get this done. You, you understand that you can usually take care of it. So you're not inclined to ask for help. You tend to depend on yourself. You know, you're not necessarily one wrong decision from total wipeout and devastation. You may have thought a few moves ahead, so if you do make a mistake, you might not take the full brunt of it. That level of self-dependence, I just want to acknowledge it could be difficult to grasp the fullness of grace. 
it could be very difficult to look at these verses and really see the treasure that has been opened. The throne of grace could lose appeal because maybe you hardly visit it. Maybe you hardly visit the throne of grace because you haven't necessarily discovered a place of need or this need for mercy in your own life or this, this, this application of you can find help in the time of need. You've been trained mentally that you can depend on yourself. But some of the greatest lessons in humility are learned when you ask for help. Some of the greatest lessons in humility when you just ask somebody to help you. And righteousness isn't just found in this acknowledgement, this tacit acknowledgement that most people here, I'm sure, would admit. Yes, we all need grace. I, I think I'd be hard-pressed to find someone here who would say, no, I don't need grace. Uh, grace is kind of a take-it-or-leave-it thing. I think I'd be hard-pressed to find that individual here. But it's, it's something that you can acknowledge but then not act on. The righteousness that we're, we're seeing here isn't just found in acknowledging that you need grace, but then acknowledging the need and actually acting upon it, coming to the throne of grace, finding help, and not just finding help in the sense where you're asking for forgiveness for the sins that you are able to perceive or these aspects of your character that you don't really like that much, but this investigation of Scripture that reveals the sin in your life drives you back to the throne of grace again and again. I need mercy. I need grace for who I am and my sin condition. And then you take it a step further because after you confess those things, you don't just want to stay in that condition. You don't want to just stay confessing the same things over and over again as you fail on the same level again and again. You also want to ask help for God to give you strength and power to overcome those things. So it's good to acknowledge that you need grace. It's better to acknowledge that you need grace for specific things. And then it's even better to ask for help, God's help, to overcome those things which you have identified. And the maturation of the full Christian becomes evident to the world. The throne of grace is multifaceted. It goes deeper. So again, the throne of grace allows you to meet with someone who knows you. So you're not just confessing these things to someone who's wanting to, to just know all your business and then condemn you. But you find someone who says, come. And then he tells you that he fights for you. He has everything to offer. He wants to commune with you. Come and commune with me. I hope you think that, that drawing near with confidence 
doesn't abandon the majesty of Christ, but it allows the comfort of his grace to wash over you. You're experiencing the fullness of his majesty when you're experiencing his grace wash over you. Not just being intimidated by the glorious throne and he's sitting at the majesty on high. How could I ever ascend up there? No, he's come to you. That grace should wash over you. And that is the essence of his majesty. That's why everybody will worship him in the end is because he is not only great and glorious, but he has saved that which could not be saved apart from his work. Since we know all this, your prayer life should be really frank and honest. There's no tiptoeing around God like, oh, I don't want to say that because that, that seems like it's off limits before God. Where you're kind of protecting your own righteousness before the God who already knows everything. No, there's, there's a deep confession, there's a deep fellowship, there's a deep joy in the fact that God knows you, seeks to fight for you and care for you, rise you up and remind you that his grace is enough. So I'll leave you with a few questions. What does your interaction with the throne of grace look like? How often do you visit? What types of things are shared? How real do you get? Ask yourself, is it pretense in the scripted kind of way to do it? Or is there a deep canvassing of your soul? I want you to understand that there's no shame found in these passages. There's no shame at all. This interaction with God is not what it was through Aaron. It wasn't, I have to do everything that I can to hold it all together before I see God. And even if I see him, I'm terrified of him. There's no more shame. Perfect love casts out the fear We can come confidently to him without hesitation. We're interacting with majesty. We have a gracious audience with majesty. What would you say to this hypothetically rich king who owns so many things? What would you say to someone like that who would give you anything that you'd ask? They'd ask, what would you say to the Jesus who you are convinced knows everything about who you are, tends to offer grace and mercy in the time of need? If you haven't visited the throne of grace, you're missing out on what this Christian life is actually supposed to be. He gives you help. He gives you mercy. And his majesty is defined by the loving kindness and favor that he wants to show you. So we walk in this world knowing that we are known and we are cared for. We are empowered.
by the God who is victorious in every sense of the word. We know the king of glory. We don't just have to hold on to a moment that we had an interaction with him in order to have this association. He's right next to us every time. So again, with Scripture, I leave the invitation, come, come and commune with God. Come if it's the first time. Come for the rest of your life. Come forever. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. I pray, God, that we see you as you are, not who we decide you to be or trying to discover different ways to interact with you on our own terms. God, that you would continue to graciously beckon us to come closer. Remind us in your word that you show this sympathy that we can't even comprehend, that you have been tempted in ways that we haven't begun to learn how to resist. But you are without sin. That you stand faithful and true, ready, willing to forgive and to show a love that passes our understanding. I pray that that's peaceful for us. I pray that that's restful. I pray that that's encouraging for us. I pray it's convicting for us, but not convicting in the sense of condemnation, but a convicting as in we haven't taken the opportunity that's laid out before us. Lead us and guide us into all truth. Beckon us ever closer. Thank you for your persistence, your faithfulness, and your kindness to us. Help us to rest in the bosom of Jesus. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.